there's just been this recent story in the news about uh, a, a priest or someone who was in the Presbyterian church for 30 years and has just announced that they are uh, going away from, you know, wh whatever they believed there uh, and turning back to the African religion. And this wasn't the first story. I, I was hearing recently as well about another uh, Anglican uh, who was based in the U.S. and he was saying, no, he wants to go back. Uh, to the way that they worshipped, and he was also Kikuyu. And so we see that there's a resurgence of um, uh, an interest within the African traditional religion. Actually, while I've been here, the questions that I've received from young people have been around African traditional religion. Somebody asked me, uh, why, why should we worship in the way that the Christians do? Why, why shouldn't we go back seeing the results, the amazing results that when you gave a sacrifice at the Mugumo tree, rain would, would start falling? Why should we now go to Christianity where it seems the results are not so uh, evident or immediate? So there's a resurgence. But also, the thing with African traditional religion is that it's... Uh, it's it's got an ability to go undercover. It's, it's, it's not just a religion. And if you look at many African languages, there's actually no word for religion. What it was is that it, it was a way of life. It's, it's a way of viewing the world. It's a worldview. And uh, admittedly, I, I've seen this worldview in myself. And I would suggest that many of us uh, who are African actually have this worldview underlying us. And so it's important for us to understand where this worldview influences us. Now, in every worldview, there are things that are, we as Christians would believe are, are positive, that point toward God or, or, or give an open door uh, to God in the Christian view. But there are also things that are neutral. They're neither positive nor negative. They're, they're neither here nor there. And then there are things that are negative. So it's important that we affirm the things that are positive within the worldview, and we just leave the things that are neutral, but we identify and uproot the things that are negative from a, a, a Christian uh, perspective. Not only that, uh, I think in, in times gone by, uh, in the recent past, uh, kind of the, the early 20th century, the view on the African religion was, was very negative. And so it's associated with words such as backwards, uh, primitive, uh, superstitious. Uh, and uh, this has given a, a negative outlook upon it, and which is part of why uh, this current generation has, is having a reaction to that. And so we need to clear away the prejudices, we need to clear away the stereotypes, and have an accurate understanding of what the African religion believes. Finally, we need to, to be able to have reasoned and uh, relevant conversations with people who believe uh, differently to what we do. Now, as, as you've heard, this is just one marriage, Kate and Kogi. But the differences that they have within the views of uh, God and uh, what the religion was, uh, you could say is diverse. And this is part of the complexity that we face when we look at the African religion. Africa is diverse. Uh, UNESCO think that there are over 2,000 languages. And for each language, there is a name for God, we, we think, and a way of approaching God. So uh, as I start, I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, we'll be giving a lot of uh, generalization. Uh, so don't take what I'm saying as, you know, you go to Nigeria or you, you go to Burkina Faso and you say this is exactly what they believe. There's some general things there are some trends that will hold true, but there will also be some many 
dissimilarities. Not only that, but Africa matters to the world. It, it matters in a significant way. The population is growing incredibly. Currently, uh, the population is 16% of the world. And we expect that by 2050, Africa will constitute a quarter of the world. And by 2100, Africa will constitute a third of the world population. So it's really important that we understand the worldview behind the African traditional religion. Now, the, the final complexity that we have is that Africa has undergone and is undergoing significant change. We've got a very young population, 65% are under the age of 25. While uh, our population has been largely rural, so we, we think that about two-thirds were in the rural areas, there's a massive urbanization that's happening. So you've got a flow of ideas between urban and rural. The politics, colonization, decolonization, and globalization, and all of these things are influencing how people perceive themselves and perceive reality. And finally, our culture was predominantly oral. So you won't find a book uh, with, you know, Kikuyu, this is how we do things in the Kikuyu way, or this is how we do things in this culture. It's been passed on from generation to generation through the elders, and sometimes it's not even through the elders. You, you don't have sessions where your parents or your grandparents uh, sit you down and tell you, this is what we believe about the world and this is how we ought to worship. It happens at crucial times uh, where there's a sacrifice or a ritual or you're passing through a certain phase of life. I'll explain that uh, as we go along. And sometimes it just happens in the process of life. You hear your parents saying a certain thing and it just sticks with you. And this is how... African traditional religion is passed on. Now, finally, uh, I, I mentioned how African religion is adaptive, and uh, I think we'll have the slide up, which shows that currently the stats say that Africa is predominantly Christian. So we think that there are over 500 million people who's, who profess to be Christians on the African continent out of a population of about 1.2 billion. And this is in the majority. But what you'll see is that despite those who would say we practice African religion being in a very small minority, less than 10%, the ideas behind African religion predominate both within Islam, which we think is about 30%, and Christianity. And so we're not, we not just focused on um, a, a tribe somewhere out there who are isolated. Many of these ideas are within our politics. Many of these ideas are within our churches. Many of these ideas are within our mosques. And so we need to be aware of the adaptive nature of African uh, traditional religion. All right, so how we're going to tackle this is that I want to start by talking about uh, some of what I can call the common beliefs. Then we'll talk about the practices. Then I want to show how Jesus uh, bridges this gap within the beliefs and the practices, how African religion interacts with Christianity. Uh, and then I want to talk about some, I'll close by talking about some common objections that Africans might hold to the Christian gospel. Is that right? All right, great. The, now, before I, I, I do that, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm from Zimbabwe. Um, I recently moved to Kenya. I've been here for about a year. And I grew up in what you would call a Christian home, or if there was a census, 
we would be counted as Christians. So I'm told that my grandfather was uh, what people commonly call a witch doctor or a medicine man or, or herbalist. But he, uh, he, he had three wives and he at some point converted to Christianity. And so uh, my dad's uh, family would say they were Christian. My mom's family as well would say they were Christian, although my grandfather also had two wives. So there's no point at which growing up I participated in any uh, rituals or practices that you would associate with African uh, traditional religion. We would go to church and that kind of thing. Uh, but um, it, within my teenage years, I decided that I, I didn't like Christianity. So I stopped going to church and resolved that I wasn't a Christian. And at the end of my high school, um, I went to teach at a very remote location that was in the rural areas. So I grew up predominantly urban, uh, Western education, left for us by the British. Um, and so I had kind of that, that background. And so I went to this very remote location that was hundreds of kilometers away from my family. And when I got there, it was raining. Um, I was just so depressed because it was raining, I was in a new place, I was all alone. And then they showed me the house that I was going to live in. It was isolated from all the other houses. There was no electricity. And I remember on that first night, I, I prayed for the first time in many, many years. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I just thought, man, here there's no electricity, it's going to be dark, I don't know, this house is all by itself. I just need some protection. And so what I'm trying to paint is that the, this worldview of, of African religion, as I'll explain, it, it just permeates the African thinking and reality. And the first thing is that there is an invisible world. In general, would say Africans believe that there is an invisible world. And one person talking about it uh, was saying that atheism was not something that you would associate with Africa. It, before colonization, before the ideas that are coming now from circularism and uh, scientific rationalism, you, you really wouldn't find an African who didn't believe in the invisible realm. And so in general, all Africans believe that there is a God. We don't have the same name for this God, uh, but we believe he at least created human beings. He, he's the reason why everything exists. And the different names of this God uh, reflect the thinking of each culture and ethnic group on what they believe about this God. So he, he's called, the, omnipot he's called the, the omnipotent one. He's called the, the all-powerful one. He's called the creator. He's called the sustainer. He, he is called uh, good. He's called provider. Uh, he, he's called the, the God of war. It just depends on what the view of reality is necessary within that culture. So there's a belief of God. And like what Kogi and Kate shared, it is believed that God initially created uh, humanity and he might have created everything, but something happened. Initially, the sky and the earth were together. Heaven and earth, if you'd like, uh, were united. But something happened that caused God to separate from man and he became remote. And there are different stories about this. And one of the things about African stories is that they are not, uh, they are created 
to be memorable. So African stories, they're they're not scientific in nature. They they, they don't explain the how, but they explain basic ideas. So in Nigeria, there's there's a story about how you know, people were making lots of noise. And so that annoyed God. And so he, he moved away. And here in Kenya, there's a story about how people were making fires. And God didn't like those fires. And so he moved away. And I think when you hear these stories, you think, well, that's really funny. But think about the, the, the story in the Bible. We, we talk about somebody ate a, a fruit that was forbidden. That sounds ridiculous. To the secular man. And how, can you explain war, genocide, because somebody ate a fruit they were not supposed to? That, that sounds ridiculous. And so the, the mythologies of, uh, that you find in Africa are not as funny when we compare them with the story that we have in the Bible. And so now you've got God who is remote. He's most uh, would say that he is unknowable. He is so great, he's transcendent, you can't really know what he's like. We, we can see traces of it in him creating and, and providing, but actually, for you to say you know God, that would be presumptuous. And then we've got spirits and powers, so you've got God here, and then within the invisible realm, you've got spirits and powers. And there are two kind of types of spirits. Some are like personal spirits. So these personal spirits would be uh, within West Africa. They would say that they are what we might call lesser divinities. So these are like gods, but they're not God. So they believe in one God. It's monotheistic. But then it's kind of like he's had children or some ancestors were um, promoted to become kind of like gods and they're good gods, they're bad gods. And those are the ones that you interact with. Those are the ones who are active in everyday life. They are the ones you need to be in good books with. So you've got those kind of divinities. And then more like East and Southern Africa, that's where you find uh, the, the ancestors. So one uh, theologian, John Beatty, has, has called it the living dead. And so we would believe that when somebody dies, it's just his body that's gone. But actually, he's been promoted. Not everybody, you know, it has to be senior people within the family or within the community. And they become intermediaries for you between God and you. And so, uh, one of the reasons why people don't understand the concept of of nepotism and and, and that kind of thing in Africa is that you have to look after your family. The the idea of family and community is so deep-rooted. I think we even heard from the cosmologies. They were saying, you know, God created Gikuyu, Gikuyu. It's not that Gikuyu emerged from many different tribes or the Kamba emerged. God especially created our family. And so the ties that you have to your family are deep and they are run strong. And so even after you're dead, you've still got a responsibility. I mean, responsibilities in Africa, you can't escape from them. When you're alive, you've got responsibilities. When you're dead, you still need to take care of your family. And so we've got these ancestral intermediaries that we, they would believe they 
those are the ones that you need to be in good books with. And so when you're making sacrifices, uh, you're making towards them. They're the ones who take care of your family. When you, uh, before people go for some endeavor, whether it's a job interview or whatever, or it's your grandparent, if they believe in that, they would mention all the names of the family to say to the ancestors, please remember them wherever they are because no one else will take care of them. You can't expect someone else's ancestors to take care of your family. Neither can you expect someone else, right? If you are Kiku, you can't expect that the Lua is going to be uh, looking after your interests, right? You can't expect that the, if you have a, a, a Luya running things or a Kalenjin, that they, they will worry about you, Kikui. It, that doesn't make sense to the African mind. So not only do we have an invisible world, the invisible influences the visible. I just shared about how, you know, when I went away, I was thinking, man, I'm all alone here. There's something that can happen to me. The invisible can, can influence the, the visible. And it can be for good or for bad. And so if you have a good harvest, if things are happening well, then you can attribute it to someone else that they've, they've helped you. And what I'm trying to do as well as I'm talking is I want you to see even within Christianity how these ideas come in. The invisible can influence the visible. Let me tell you this story. So a couple of years ago, a young man was brought to me um, and this young man was, was feeling unwell. He was, he was sick. And he said that he was, uh, you know, losing strength. He it was in an agricultural college, and so he had to do a lot of work. And so he was on the verge of leaving because he said he just couldn't do the work. He didn't have the power. And he was also having headaches. And what he said was the reason was that it was his uncle who was bewitching him. And how he had diagnosed this is that he was having dreams of his uncle chasing him. And so he said when he started having these dreams, that's when he became sick. And this story is not unique um, within Africa. It's not unique within our churches, uh, neither, right? Someone might think, well, why am I not getting married? What, how come there are no men who are proposing to me? Or why is this man not getting married? And we say, okay, we were going to pray for those who are looking for a spouse, right? So that you can find a spouse because there's some invisible cause that's affecting your physical reality. Why is everyone in our family getting divorced? Why, why, did I, my, why is my business not working? And so if we said, hey, everyone who's got businesses that are not working, come and we are going to give you something, an anointed rock or uh, some anointed oil, right? And people will flock to the church. This is because we believe that the, there's some invisible cause that is affecting our reality. Another just interesting story, when I was growing up, HIV was a big, big thing in our country. And one of my uncles, uh, in fact, several of my relatives passed away, sadly. And I remember my dad, I, I would hear the conversations and they were saying that there was another uncle who was in the village who was 
bewitching the other relatives and causing them to die. Now, in my mind, I remember for many years, I wondered how this was possible because I understood how HIV was transmitted, right? That it's a sexual transmitted disease. It, it cracked my little brain. No, so how did this guy manage to cause all these people to engage in sexual activity and with people who are HIV positive? It, it, it was a great mystery, but that's the, the, the belief that the invisible affects the visible. One puts it this way. Whether you die from natural uh, a car accident or uh, malaria or HIV, there's got to be somebody behind that. If that malaria came with a mosquito, somebody sent that mosquito. The invisible affects the visible. So not only does it affect, we can and should interact with it. And we interact with the invisible world, or the invisible world interacts with us through dreams and omens. An omen is just some sign that happens, and it's, it's inexplicable, it's inexplicable, but it shows that somebody is communicating a message with you. An uncle of mine passed away, and so we were at the funeral. Um, and in the middle of the night, the uh, people are driving to the funeral, and a python crosses the road. This was an omen. I mean, like a python is within our particular culture. It's, it's not just an ordinary snake. It's sacred. And then get this. He had a will, and he left it in a, briefcase, in a briefcase, and nobody had the code for the briefcase. A few days after... He had died, his daughter sees the code in the dream and unlocks the briefcase. And so the invisible world interacts with the visible. Now you, you and I might say, well, maybe it was orchestrated. Maybe she had it all the time. And she was just claiming that, you know, it could be fights within. But for within the family, within the normal worldview, it would be taken as this is how it occurred. There's perception. And then we don't know what the reality is, but we certainly know what the perception is. And then certain things are required to maintain harmony. So you need to maintain harmony between the visible and the invisible world. Because we've got no written book that tells you what you're supposed to do, all the do's and the don'ts and what's expected. You're always guessing, right? And now, unfortunately, the normal rhythms of life come with things such as illness, uh, misfortunate events. And so you're wondering, could this be something unseen that's affecting me? And so you want to do all that you can to maintain harmony. And this was through the sacrificial systems, through the prayers, and through other things, getting charms. Not only does the invisible affect the visible, the visible can affect the invisible, both positively and negatively. And so from a positive side, there, there was a system of uh, what we might call intermediaries, mediators. And these are your, your priests in some cultures, more in the Western African side. You've got ritual elders. 
I mean, there was a story recently in the, in the newspaper about the elders of the Kikuyu um, anointing uh, the Speaker of, uh, of Parliament to say now he is the, the representative. And then a, a, a few weeks later, another faction of the elders of the Kikuyu came out and said, no, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened at that location. And we're coming to cleanse. But what I'm saying is that you've got a system of intermediaries, priests, ritual elders, diviners. Now, a diviner is somebody who reads the signs to talk, to, 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 either to explain events or to predict the future. And they've got different methods whether it's stones or bones or, uh, or something that they use. And then you've got mediums. A medium is someone through whom the spirits can communicate with the living uh, people. And so you have somebody who can, uh, I don't want to use the word channel, but I, I, I think that's, that's the word. And you've got spirits that can either be family level just in your individual family. They can be in clan level, so your extended family, and they can even be tribe level. And so you have different mediums for, for each level. You've got rainmakers. And so there were certain people who were in the community who, could, uh, who knew what needed to be done to bring rain. You've got medicine men. They're uh, called wish doctors, although that's not a, a very PC term. And what they're able to do is either to give you a charm or to do something on your behalf to influence positively, or they can also diagnose something that's been done to you. And these guys, they always have a diagnosis. I remember in the community we were in, uh, somebody was struck by lightning. They were working on their chicken house, uh, so they were on top of it, and you know it was cloudy and it was about to rain, and they were struck by lightning. And their relatives went to find out who had sent that lightning. And so when you get to a medicine man, he's not going to ask, you know, was it about to rain? Were they on the highest point, you know, like a lightning conductor? They, they, have, they have got a response to tell you, no, it was this uncle or this person. Because there's a belief in what Kogi mentioned, the evil eye. That you can't trust other people. Because what you have, they, they've got an agenda over you. And then negatively, you can... Uh, why I say negatively? Because this is looked down upon to use witchcraft or magic to affect other people negatively. But it's widely believed and many people think widely practiced. For example, in Kilifi County, I hear that 400 people approximately every year are killed on accusations of witchcraft. And so this is not something to take lightly. This is a widespread belief. So we've seen the beliefs. There's an invisible world. The invisible world impacts the visible, and the visible can impact or influence the invisible world. 
I won't go into detail on the practices because these are as varied as the ethnic groups that are there, but they encompass things like morality. If you want to understand African morality, you can't understand it from a Western or European perspective where it's kind of, okay, this is right and this is wrong, or this is constitutional or unconstitutional. I mean, you've seen what even our politicians do, right? They'll, they'll, they'll make a new law, and then they're told it's unconstitutional. Like, oh, okay, I wasn't aware. And then a few weeks later, you hear they've changed the constitution to suit the old law that they'd made. Because the morality is not based on right and wrong. It, it, it was based on communal, what's accepted within the community. Keeping your community on sides, being accepted. Honor, you, you, you might call this honor and shame. But not only is there the honor and shame of community, but there's also what we might call power and fear, anxiety. This is best encapsulated in what we call taboos. A taboo is something that you're not supposed to do because it results in a consequence. So for example, you might be told that you shouldn't make fun of someone who's disabled, not because it's wrong or it's cruel or mean, but because you have a child who has that disability. And so this is a very strong taboo. Growing up, we'd be told, don't sit in the road. Not because a car might run over you, but because you'll get boils on your bum, right? And you used to be told, don't look at the opposite sex when they're naked, because you'll get a boil on your eye. And so imagine you get an infection on your eye and you have to go to school. All the other kids will be laughing at you that this, this person was looking at someone of the opposite sex. You are a peeping Tom. And so these are taboos. And then we've got times. Times, the African religion was all-encompassing. It covered from before you were born to your birth to the days after you're born, into your initiation, into adulthood, to how you get married, to when you have a child, to when you lose your parents, when you die. There was something that had to be done in each of these stages of life. And so you'll find a lot of children with bangles, with, with, with colored things on, on them, on, on their wrists and their legs, because there's the belief that you have to do something at that time. That's why initiation still plays a, a big role. Because you, you have to do something for someone crossing into that phase of life. And then places. It's like we heard mentioned that there are special places. Any place can be special where the sacrifices are made, where the invisible meets with the visible. This can, can be a mountain can be even a, 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 a water body. It's, it can be even a tree. If a tree just looks extraordinary, you might think, well, this is where the visible meets with the invisible. Art, music. People come and they look at the rock paintings and say, wow. But those, they, they were not just paintings to express yourself and, and leave your mark on the world. But it was an act of worship and an expression of who they were, the music. Music 
a lot of the time when you are getting into that process of interacting with the invisible world, there were dancers that were involved. Special people would be dressed in special ways. And they knew how to really dance in a way that calls the invisible world. Then you've got sayings. These are like proverbs and, and riddles, which is why I say that it's passed on orally, because while a family might say we're now Christian, those sayings remain, right? The, the, the sayings, for example, about the evil eye, your parents, they'll, they'll just say, hey, don't trust this relative. If it offers you some food, don't eat it. They, they don't explain why, but that idea becomes ingrained within you. And then the beliefs and the customs, I think I've already spoken about these, and the names, names of places, names of people. One family was sharing with me how they are, they are Kikuyu and they decided to name their children differently. So I think there's this aspect where you get your mother's name, then you get your grandmother's, and they decided to do things differently. And this resulted in great acrimony within the family because names are important. And then the stories that we tell. Now, I've spoken about the beliefs and the practices. The question is, how does Christianity interact with these beliefs and practices? And I want to show that Jesus fulfills the goal and the desire of the beliefs and the practices that are found within the African religion. And when I talk about the goal and the desire, is to create harmony between the invisible and the visible world. It's to bring to reality the invisible world within the visible. The first thing that Jesus does is that he reveals the invisible God. We find in Hebrews, at the very opening of the book, it says that after God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to the patriarchs, through the prophets, he has spoken to us in these last days through his son. Not only that, it's through the son that he created all the world. And the Son is the express representation. He's the very image of God, not Gikuyu, not Gikamba, but Jesus. The glory of who he is. And he fulfills everything that every sacrifice was ever meant to do. And this is wonderful news. Because where we've thought we've got a remote God, a faraway God, we, in fact, what is revealed in the Bible is a God who wants to be close to people. A God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through prophets. And so it wasn't a case of people reaching out to God. It was God himself condescending down to people. And Jesus beautifully shows this even in his own life because one of the, the, the groups of people that are marginalized in African society are children. In fact, when, sometimes when visitors arrive, they might think that there's no child in that household because children are just trained to disappear in the presence of elders. And this was similar in Jewish culture. So when parents were bringing children to Jesus, his disciples 
try to cordon him off and say, hey, no. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. He, he went down, he picked them up, he interacted with them. And in that way, he was revealing what God is like. That God is not distant. He, he doesn't get cordoned off by, by systems and by people. He condescends to where we are. And so Jesus reveals God. Not only does he reveal God, whether God was, there was an alienation between God and man, which was because of loud noise or, or fires or, or the eating of forbidden fruits, one thing was clear, that there was an alienation that was there. That God exists was self-evident in everything that was made. But why does this God who created everything, suddenly, why can't we hear him? Why can't we speak to him? Why do we feel alienated away from him? And so we, we have systems, we have places, we have morality, we, we've got things that we do that we, we, we try and hope. Hopefully this will give us peace. Hopefully, this will give us harmony. Hopefully, this, this will take away bad luck. This will prevent accidents. This will prevent sickness. This will give us good harvest. This, this will care for my family. But you could never know. Because what it needed was somebody who knew God personally, who himself was God. And he became a man. He became one of us. And we Africans, we understand this. Because when you want to get married, it's, it's not like, I don't know whether it's European culture, American culture, that you go and you ask the father for the hand in marriage. That is crazy. Right? Because... The father is such an authority figure, is remote. And so you need to organize through a system of intermediaries. You start with your own relatives. And by the way, when you go to your relatives, you don't just go there and say, I want to get married. You talk to someone who represents you to your family. And they know who needs to know, right? So they know the process. You need this uncle, you need this aunt, they need to know. And then we begin talks now with the other family. And what normally happens is that you get a mediator. Someone who's trusted. It's important that they have to be known and trusted by the wife's family, right? Because otherwise, how are they going to negotiate a good dowry for you? You'll get hammered. So you need somebody who knows that family and is trusted. But you also need to what? To trust them. Because what you, you don't want a, a double agent that meanwhile you think they're negotiating on your behalf, but actually their mission is to raise the dowry as high as it can be. So they need to be trusted by both parties. And so this is how the marriage negotiation is undertaken, through a mediator. As the husband, you, you, you only appear after the negotiations have been completed. And now you're presented, this is the, your son-in-law. Now imagine you impregnate your wife first. 
those negotiations they now become acrimonious. Because the family is saying, you disrespected us. You, you jumped over the fence. You, 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 you're a thief and a robber. How, how can we enter into negotiations with a thief and a robber? So imagine showing up to ask for your wife's hand in marriage after she's pregnant by yourself. Would that work? But the thinking in African religion was that we ourselves could create a system of connecting with God. How can we, the ones who have wronged God, then approach him on our own terms? It's impossible. Even African culture says it cannot work. It needed God himself to send a mediator. And this is what he did in Jesus. He sent him to become a priest on our behalf. He sent him to become our negotiator, our mediator. And the payment was his own life, his own blood. And because of that, heaven and earth can be united. We can approach God with boldness and with confidence. Jesus unites the invisible and the visible world. Finally, Jesus is the perfection of all religious practices. The writer to the Hebrews, even looking at the Jewish system, said that they were just a shadow. How much more when we look at the diversity of systems and practices across Africa? I remember one person saying, well, I want to explore other religions before considering Christianity. And I said, well, good luck. There are 2,000, at least 2,000 languages in Africa. Are you going to learn every single language? Because you need to, to learn all their practices. How, how will you explore all of that? All these, they were just a shadow. They just pointed to there being something wrong, some disunity, something that needed to be done. And Jesus is the perfection. Every other sacrifice is perfected in his sacrifice. The yearning for morality is perfected in his perfect life. Every stage of life, whatever fear there might be, is perfected in his life, death, and resurrection. Every sacred time and, and, and place, mountain, dam, tree, finds its meaning in him because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Every belief and custom. Friends, if our ancestors, our forefathers, had this news, this would have been amazing, wonderful news because they could never have certainty. But in Christ, you can have certainty. You can know that truly your sacrifice is fulfilled. I love how the verse that's up finishes by saying that Jesus purifies our consciences from dead works. Every practice is just a dead work, something that can avail nothing to God. Why would God need the blood of a goat? Why would a charm move God? 
How, how can God reside in the fig tree? Or in Mount Kenya? All of these are dead works. If we want to worship the living God, then we need a living sacrifice and mediator. There's only one who has died and risen again. And this doesn't, it just doesn't apply to Africans. I, I had the privilege of, of visiting Israel, and I, I went to the place where they, they, they said was the location of the temple. And there, even to this day, you've got practicing Jews putting their prayer requests on the wall, what is the Western Wall, and, and making their prayers there. And I asked, okay, why is this done? And the guy who was guiding us said that because this is the closest they feel they can get to the presence of God because the temple was where they met with God. And in my heart, I was filled with pity that, wow, man, this is so distressing. When you are just behind a wall and you feel this is the closest I can get to God. And so this is not good news just for Africa. It's good news even for Israel. It's good news for Europe. It's, it's good news for Asia. That now we have unhindered access to the living God through Christ. Uh, can we have the next slide? So this slide is from a newspaper article. That was a few weeks ago. The story is that a, an eagle had a snake in its talons, and it dropped the snake on top of a car. The snake slithered into the car and bit the man who was driving the car on the hand. And so the man stops the car uh, to, you know, take care of that. The snake slithers out, and the events after that are still disputed. Some say, while well, we were beating the snake to try and kill it. Others say, while well, we were looking for things to kill the snake. The bird picks up the snake and takes it away. And so the standard opens with witchcraft, right? And so they're already leading you to say, hey, this is witchcraft. I remember sharing this story to someone and they asked, where did it happen? And I was like, Kitui. Like, ah, no, Kitui. And so this, this sparked a debate on a WhatsApp group to say, what, what happened here, guys? And how do we handle it? And someone said, well, you know, how you handle it is by doing all the things required in Christianity and making sacrifices. And this startled a number of people in the group. Oh, what sacrifices do you need to make? And they're like, yeah, you know how in churches you can uh, take money to the altar for a specific thing. And this is a practice that is, 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 is there in Kenya. And dare I say across Africa. And possibly in America as well. <laughs> but with what we've said, Jesus completes everything. There's no longer need for a sacrifice. You don't need a mediator. You don't need the pastor or the prophets or the priest to wave incense on you, to put some water on you, or to lay their hands on you. Christ is sufficient. He is the one sacrifice to end every sacrifice. 
in the words of the Lord of the Rings, the one ring to rule them all. And I'd shared the story of the guy who came to me and saying, you know, his, he was feeling bewitched by his, his uncle. And so we sat down with him, with a friend of mine, and then we opened the scriptures. We went to John chapter 10, where it says that my father is the greatest and no one can snatch from his hand. And just from there, just explained, well, you know, there's Jesus and can you believe in him? And all of that. And he said, yeah, I'll believe in him. He said to him, we prayed. And from that moment, he said, yeah, I now feel well. My headache's gone. And he remained in the agricultural college. He was a hard worker. And he even became part of the church that we were part of. And so we don't need anything else besides Jesus. He is the one mediator, the one sacrifice, the one who unites the invisible and the visible world. Now, I want to now finish by just talking about some common objections to Christianity in Africa. I'll just go through quickly as our time is gone. The first is that Christianity is not African. Christianity is un-African. Many authors, and especially during the time of uh, decolonization, this is a prominent idea that has come through. You read it in, in high school, the authors that we are given to read, like uh, Ngugi Wathiongo, Chinua Achebe, many prominent across Africa would be saying these things. Like Chinua Achebe says, the white man does not understand our customs as we do not understand his. And he's talking about Christianity. Trevor Noah, the South African comedian, who's now a host on the Daily uh, Show, he said that his grandmother was very devout. And whenever they gathered for family events and prayers, Trevor, even though he was not devout, would be asked to say the prayers. And it was explained that everyone knows that God answers English prayers first. And so Trevor had to make the prayers. So is this true? Is Christianity un-African? Is it rejecting your African identity to believe in Christ and, and accept Christianity? To become a, a sort of uh, so-called Uncle Tom, for those who, who know that terminology? Nothing could be further from the truth. When we read the Bible, Africa is represented from the very beginning to right at the end. In the Garden of Eden, there's a river called Gion, right in the explanation of Eden, and it says it flows through Cush. Right at the inception, Africa is mentioned. Noah's descendants in Genesis chapter 11, Africa is mentioned. Abraham fathered children with Africans, Hagar. Ishmael, his child. Joseph was married to an African. And so this means that his children, Ephraim and Manasseh, who became part of the tribes of Israel, were part African. And so from that story right to the end, within the Jewish story, Africa is included. Moses married an African. Israel stayed in Africa for 400 years. The Queen of Sheba was from Africa, from Aksum, Tigray. Eritrea, Isaiah prophesied about Israel, Egypt being joined to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus himself was raised in Africa. He stayed in Egypt for some time. 
Simon from Libya, Cyrene, carried his cross. On the day of Pentecost, there were people from Africa. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, before we see the gospel being taken to Europe, it was already coming to Africa. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas were sent out, there were Africans present in their prayer meeting. Apollos was from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So Africa is well represented in the New Testament story. And then in the early church, the, some of the greatest theologians who shaped Christian thinking, Tertullian, who came up with the word Trinitas, which we get Trinity from, was African. Athanasius was African. He's the one who one ancient Christian historian calls our New Testament Athanasius's canon because he was so influential in getting that canon closed. Augustine, who some call the father of Western theology, was from Africa. Friends, nothing could be far from the truth. The second objection is colonialism. Christianity was a tool for the subjugation of people. That's why now, you see, the West is even moving away from Christianity because it has achieved its purposes. And so how can you keep holding on to this dead thing? Right? Christianity was just a tool. Listen to what Jomo Kenyatta said in Facing Mount Kenya. When the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. And so this thinking is influencing our younger people and is a genuine question. Was Christianity a colonial tool? Firstly, Christianity does not come from Europe. It comes from the East. It was taken from Palestine and went through. One prominent historian, Philip Jenkins, said that by the end of the first millennia, 1000 AD, there were probably as many Christians in Africa as there were in Europe. Christianity was not a new thing in Africa in the 20th century. The Bible itself was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, Chaldee, Greek. And so when you pray in English, you're not praying in God's language. Sorry if the English people here. God has no language. Secondly, there's a narrative that seems to say that Africa was perfect before colonialism. And so we want to go back to the things that we had before then, right? We were perfect. But that is far from the truth. Africa was not perfect before colonialism, and it hasn't been perfect after independence. In fact, you know, sometimes you hear people in our country, because it was just decolonized in 1980, saying, ah, oh, those days of colonialism were better. And so there is, we, we cannot take that as truth, that everything bad in Africa came with colonialism, with the white man. Some of you would have heard Jacob Zuma saying, our problems started with the landing of the first European on the, on the Bay of South Africa. That is false. We had problems. There were the, the killing. Twins used to be killed 
and things fall apart. Chinua Achebe's book, the whole plot is about the killing of this twin. There was a caste system. Albinos were killed. Even today, these things are happening in Africa. There was the ritual cleansing after the death where a, a, a woman is uh, after the, the, the death of her husband, she, she has to sleep with someone else to be cleansed. And I, I won't mention which tribes in Kenya uh, <laughs> promote their practice, but it's there. And so we can't say our morality was great, where you say you can love your clan and hate everyone else. How, how can that be great? Where you, you do right because you're afraid of the consequence, not because of the rightness of right, the goodness of good. No, Christianity was not a tool for colonialization. And finally, much undeniable good was done through the early missionaries. This is true in our education and our healthcare. The final objection is that Christianity is not working in Africa. Like Kogi said, the stories are, when we did our ritual sacrifice, the rain would immediately come. While well, we're still doing it. But look at Christianity. Look at the state of Africa with Christianity. The place in sub-Saharan Africa where it's predominantly Christian according to the statistics, that's where you have HIV. That's where you have war. That's where you have genocide. That's where you have poverty. That's where you have the corruption is at its highest. So obviously, Christianity is not working for Africa. Now, this is a very relevant and pertinent objection. We go back to the words of Jesus. Jesus gave two stories. I won't tell them, but I've got the verse references. One was the story of the weeds where a man goes and plants, and then at night his enemy comes and plants. And so weeds come up with the wheat. And he said, shall we pull up the weeds? And he said, no, let's wait till the end of time. You can't judge whether Christianity is effective before the end of time. Inasmuch as we can trace within the history of Europe and see the positive benefits of Christianity, but the reality is true faith will only be judged on that day. And so weeds will come up with the truth. And so you will have certain people claiming that they're Christian, certain things being done in the name of Christianity, but they don't hold water when you come to Scripture. And so we can't say Christianity is not working for Africa. We will see the fruit on that day. Matthew 25, the story of the separation of the goats and the sheep. Again, it's through what people do that we can know whether they're truly of faith. And so this is where I want to close. And if you're wondering about African religion, Africanness, and Christianity, I just want to point you once again to Jesus. He's the one who reveals this remote, invisible God and makes him near. He's the one who unites the visible and the invisible. And he's the one who is the end of every other ritual and practice and intermediary that there might be. Consider him and see that he will fulfill your very desires. Amen.